0: No one ever told me how grief could feel like fear. I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. It's the same. um, Fluttering in the stomach, the same. Restlessness, the yawning I keep on swallowing. At other times it feels like being mildly drunk or concussed. There's a sort of um, invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says. It's so uninteresting. Yet, I want the others to be about me. I dread the moments when the house is empty. If only they would... Talk to one another and not to me. Now, love is not the whole of man's life. I was happy long before I met Helen. I was happy before I met Helen. I have plenty of what are called resources. I mean, people get over these things, right? But then comes a jab of red hot. Memory and all of this common sense, it just vanishes like an ant in the mouth of a fire. I almost, I almost prefer the moments of agony, these at least are uh, clean and honest, but the bath. Of self-pity, the the, the the wall of the the, the loathsome, sticky-sweet pleasure of indulging in it. That disgusts me. And even while I'm doing it, I know that it leads me to misrepresent... To misrepresent Helen herself. And no one told me about the laziness of grief, except at my job, where the machine seems to run on as much as usual, I. Loathe the slightest effort. Not only writing, but even reading a letter is too much. I mean, even shaving. What does it matter now whether my cheek is rough
1: or smooth? I'm
0: sorry. They say a man, uh, uh, an unhappy man wants distractions, something to, um, to take him out of himself. Only as a dog tired man wants um, an extra blanket on a cold night. He, he would he would rather lie there shivering than get up and find one. It's easy to see why the uh, lonely become untidy and finally, uh, dirty and disgusting. I'm disgusting. Meanwhile, where is God? Not that I'm in any danger of ceasing to believe in God. Rather, the, the real danger is uh, coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion that I fear isn't, so there's no God after all. But, but the conclusion that I fear is, so... This is what God's really like. I'm not afraid. I'm not. I'm not afraid. But this grief, it feels so like fear. <laughs>
1: On Halloween night, I was out here in our parking lot, and uh, many of you were out there as we served our community, and I began talking to a lady I'd never m- met her before. She was a struggling mom, and she said, uh, if, it, if, it weren't, if it weren't for your food pantry, I don't know what my daughter and I would have done these past, past few, past year or two. She said, I, I just... I don't know what we would have done. We've struggled so much uh, the past couple years. And I, and I said, so has it just kind of felt like you've been in this storm? And she said, yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like every corner we turn, the storm is already there waiting for us. It's already darkened the skies before we even get to the new road. And every single journey on our path the last couple of years has just been nothing but one storm cloud after another. In reading history this past year, I began to pick up a theme of how when people suffer, they write music. Have you ever thought about that? From the Trail of Tears to... Slave plantations to the potato famine, people wrote songs because it helped them uh, express their misery and in some way maybe comfort them. Uh, Frederick Douglass noticed this. Douglas was uh, escaped slavery in eighteen thirty eight made his way up to Massachusetts. Um, met a man named William Lloyd Garrison and the two of them began going around and speaking together. Garrison was super impressed with Douglas and, and so they began traveling together. And Douglas was so articulate and intellectual. He ended up writing a book and after he wrote the book, he really gained national fame. And while that might have been a good thing, it also meant that he was getting death threats from all over the place. And he and Garrison decided it might be best for him to actually leave the country for a while because they felt like his life was in danger. And so he went uh, across the big pond to the United Kingdom and spent time there. And he really enjoyed his time in Ireland. But there was a thing happening at that time called the Great Potato Famine. And back home in America... Douglas would be the first to tell you that many of the Irish Americans had been the worst to him. They had discriminated against, abused, been violent to him, to people he loved, and they had given him a very rough time. And yet, in Ireland, he found people he identified with. They were not only poor, but they were oppressed, and many of the potato farmers had felt the uh, discrimination placed upon them, and this system was put in place, and they just could not get out of it. They were stuck in poverty and starvation, and Douglas began to identify with these people, and he wrote, the wailing notes of Irish ballads remind me of the notes of slave songs. When people hurt and suffer, they often write music. They sing a song. The truth is that we all sing a song of sadness, because life is... Hurts. And if you're not singing that song today, you know somebody who is. We're left wondering why God would allow our suffering to happen and how we can even survive. And no other book in the entire world is more honest, more theological, more emotional, and just more helpful than the book of Job. Oh, it is an amazing resource. For us, and if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to go ahead and turn there. There's a lot at stake, you know, there's a whole lot at stake because if we don't learn to cope and deal with our suffering well, what will we become? You know the answer we'll become addicts, we'll binge eat or drink or gamble or work or escape, or be angry. We'll take on one of those really unhealthy patterns in life to try to cope with our suffering. So it's a big deal we're talking about, not just so that we don't do the bad stuff that suffering can lead us to, but so that we actually find there might be a purpose and promise in the suffering. And what if I told you that there's a steady rhythm you could find, seven words, that could change your life. Seven words that could be like a melody that runs through a song that could sustain your life and your faith. Seven words. Wouldn't you want to know those words? Let's pray. God, I know lots of people up here are suffering, and I, I know some people showed up today and are going to listen today because they're feeling it right now. They're feeling hurt and wounded. And God, you provide us a great resource, a great help in this book of Job. And I pray that we would hear, not from me, the preacher, but we would hear from you today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you hope you found Job. It's right before Psalms, so almost right in the middle of, of your Bible. Job is a mixture of narrative, and mostly it's dialogue, and that dialogue is very poetic, which kind of weaves together to teach us about suffering, teaches us about ourselves, and mostly teaches us about God. And if you wanted to outline the book real simply, you would just do this. Uh, Section one, Satan talks to God. Section two, the biggest section, Job argues with his friends. Section three, the conclusion God talks to Job. And there's kind of narrative kind of throughout that, but there's kind of these three big things uh, that kind of unpack here. And um, what we're going to do the next three weeks is talk about, we're actually, we've got kind of nine truths from the book of Job. They're going to kind of weave throughout and kind of overlay and be on top of each other just a little bit. Um, but we're going to we're going to try to do something really specific with each sermon too. And today we're just going to talk about how can you survive? What are the seven words that can get you through any bit of suffering? What we're going to do next week is also really important for many of you because many of you have intellectual struggles with suffering. The intellectual question the suffering is this, why? And so we're going to unpack what Job's friends were arguing with him about and really get into kind of intellectual arguments next week. And week three might kind of blow your socks off because you just don't think that this could even happen. But the title of week three is God's Surprising Blessings in the Midst of Suffering. That God can actually give us great blessings in the midst of suffering. And so that's where we're going to go with all of this. And so if you have your Bibles in Job chapter 1, we're just going to begin there. And I'm going to begin reading. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spared throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then. Everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine, at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, Another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. When suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house, it collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. The scene begins like a happy movie. You can almost hear the playful music in the background. Everything is going right for Job, and yet we have this sense something's about to change, and boy does it ever. Because scene two is when Satan comes to God, and we are left going, what in the world is this? He comes to God and says, I don't think Job really loves you that much. I think Job only likes you because everything is all peachy in his life. And if you took away those good things in Job's life, he would curse you. He doesn't really love you that much, God. And God says, you want to bet? I think that Job will honor me no matter what. And so God gives him some permission to do harm to Job. And harm comes his way. He loses his wealth, he loses his servants, uh, he loses uh, everything that he's worked so hard for all of his life, and then his own children die. Job falls to the ground, overcome with suffering, and he says those words: "The Lord is given, the Lord is taken away." And then those seven words: blessed." Be the name of the Lord. And all of life can be summarized in that, right? We're given stuff, and stuff has been taken away. And you might say, yeah, but I worked for it. Sure you did. Who gave you the, who gave you the, the ability to work? Who gave you the, the, the land in which you could have an opportunity? Who gave you the skill set? Who gave you the mind to be able to work? Everything we have is given to us, and yet everything can be taken away. And Job says, regardless of all that, blessed be the name of the Lord. And I ask you, what's your attitude when things are taken away? My favorite sermon of all time was preached by E.V. Hill at his wife's funeral. E.V. Hill was a civil rights leader. Uh, He was a peacemaker. He preached the gospel. At one point, both the KKK and the Black Panthers um, wanted him dead. And Evie Hill honored the Lord and lived this good life, and I love him as a preacher. And when his wife grew sick, she was very ill in the hospital, he found a chapel in the hospital where he went to pray, and he said, God, you know, please heal my wife. Please, uh, Please take the cancer away. And as he sat there quietly in that chapel, he was expecting to hear God say, okay, it's done. I'll take the cancer away. I'll take the sickness away. But Hill says that's not what I heard. I only heard two words from God Trust me. Trust me, even if your wife doesn't walk out of this hospital. Trust me, if I don't take the illness away. Trust me, if your heart gets ripped out. Trust me. Some of you need to hear those words this morning from God. Trust me. Trust me with the, with the illness of your spouse. Trust me with the death of your child. Trust me with the loss of your job. Trust me with the loneliness and depression that you feel. Trust me. When you read through the book of Job, you see these two big words jump out of God saying to us, trust me. My goodness, that's difficult. Hill says, We get so used to the Lord giving and giving and giving, and life can be, feel so good that when the Lord finally takes away, we pitch a temper tantrum. And we say, God, how could you take away what you had already given to me? Trust me. God says, Yes, we pray in faith. Yes, we pray. When we are sick, yes, we pray when we need God's intervention, and we have seen God deliver us time and time again. And yet, in the midst of our prayers, God says, Trust me, I may not give you everything you ask for, I may know something better than you know. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Job's suffering did not end. In the next chapter, A terrible disease follows upon him, and uh, he has these sores, it says, from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And he's so disfigured by these that his friends barely even recognize him. And his wife makes matters worse. She says, Job, just curse God and die. Just get it over with. Job says, no, 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 no. He says, you're speaking foolishly. And next week, we're really going to dive in and talk about the arguments from Job's wife and Job's friends who come. And they launch in all of these arguments of the why. Because that's the first question we ask. But today, we just want to come back to how do we survive? How do we get through this? How can we trust God? Like I mentioned, there's a bunch of truths from the book of Job that we want to mention We want to go through and kind of tackle all of them at least once through the three weeks here, and I want to kind of run through five of them for you. They're listed in your sermon page that may be helpful, but the first truth that we see from the book of Job is this. This is a big one. God is in charge. Word for that is sovereign. Even the devil has to ask permission of God. Did you catch that? And God says, okay, I'll grant you some permission. A little bit you can do this but only this much God is is in charge when we get to the end of the story the end of the book of Job if you know it resolves it ends up being happily ever after for Job but you know through reading the scriptures it doesn't always work out that way for people in the Bible and it doesn't always work out that way for us not at least in this life but for Job it does He makes a full recovery and God restores things to him. But from the first chapter to the last, we see that God is in charge. It's Satan who causes the harm, not God. Did you notice that too? Who wants to harm? It is Satan. God gives him permission. And he goes out and he does that. But how much permission does he give Satan? He only gives Satan enough permission to do in Job's Life that would result in the opposite of what Satan wanted to accomplish. In other words, God gave Satan only enough rope to hang himself. Because at the end of the story, Job's faith is fuller and richer and deeper. And oh, by the way, thousands and thousands and thousands of years later, what are we doing here in Tulsa, Oklahoma? We're talking about this man. God knew what he was doing. He was in charge. And the life of Job has literally saved the lives of millions of people through the years who have found help and hope in this book and saying, Oh, now I understand God in the midst of my suffering. And Job has been a great resource and a great help for them. God is in charge. Two, God cares. Boy, it's tough to believe that God cares when we're suffering. It's tough to think that God knows what he's doing or that he even cares. But the book of Job is sure to point out that God is there. God listens for a long time in the book of Job. I mean, he just listens chapter after chapter after chapter. Even when Job and his friends are just talking nonsense, God listens, he is close. In the first chapters, and the last chapters of the book of Job, God is referred to as Yahweh, the personal name of God. He is close. Job's friends are finally proved wrong because they say Job must be suffering because he did bad stuff. And Job says, no, 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 I should not be suffering because I have not done any of that bad stuff. Both of them are wrong there. But God comes and says, I'm still with you. Even though you're suffering, even though you may not deserve this, I'm still with you. He's intimately involved. If we had a God who knew nothing of suffering, it'd be tough to believe truth number two. If we had a God who was removed from us, if you look at most world religions, there's a God who doesn't understand suffering because that God has never suffered that God's above, and you can only hope to attain and to please and honor. But when we look at the one true God of the Bible, he is intimately familiar with suffering. And that can give us hope that God cares for us. Parents, have you ever um, found your kid's homework assignment and you noticed they did not finish all of their homework and they're already in bed? And you have a choice to make. Rescue my kid? Or let them suffer the consequences. Because as the parent, you had said three times, is all of your homework done? Is all of your homework done? Is all of your homework And they're like, yeah, uh uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. It's all good. Leave me alone, mom or dad. And as you look down there at the table at their homework, and you think, okay, what do I do? And you have a decision to make. And sometimes the wisest decision for the parent to make is to let the child suffer a little bit because that's the only way they'll learn the larger lesson. Because rescuing them the three nights before obviously had not helped. And so sometimes we trust that God cares even when we don't understand what he's doing. Truth number three, this is just going to be a quick point, but it's so true. Life can unravel in a moment. Even when I say that phrase, your mind probably races back to one phone call. Everything was fine, and then the phone rang. One word from the doctor, everything was fine. And then one sentence from the doctor. Driving down the road, everything was fine. And then one car swerved. Life can change in a moment. It's why Jesus chided people for acting like everything was great in this life. And they had it all together. And he said, you don't even know if you're going to wake up with anything tomorrow. What good is it to gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? Truth four, doubt is normal. Some of you need to hear that because you're doubting some things right now and you feel guilty about that. And you need to know that doubt is pretty normal. I will add this. Doubt is a normal place to to visit. It's a bad place to live, okay? But if you're visiting doubt, don't beat yourself up. You don't want to stay there forever forever not sure if there's a God who loves you or not, but it's a normal place to go. Read through the Psalms. I mean, David, man after God's own heart, sometimes he had some doubts about what God was doing. And we see Job here. It's normal when suffering comes to begin asking lots of questions and saying, what is going on here? You know, one of... The greatest scriptures in all the Bible is the Great Commission. We call that. It's at the end of Matthew 28. And right before Jesus ascends to heaven, he's there with his disciples. And he says, go and make disciples of all nations. He gives them this great command. And he says, go out. And that's the command to the church. Go and make disciples of all nations. But do you know what Matthew records just a couple of verses before the Great Commission? We're talking about the disciples who had seen Jesus miracles, who had heard Jesus teaching, had seen his perfect life, had seen him die and then had seen him resurrected and knew. And do you know what the verse a few verses before Matthew 28 in the great commission says? It says some of them doubted. They doubted. Why? Because doubt is a normal part of life and if your friends are doubting and they're saying maybe maybe i can't be a christian because i'm doubting and maybe i should quit this search and talk say no no, no 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 doubt is a normal thing in life it's part of our emotions with that said let me help you it's normal to be here we don't want to stay here forever so let's ask the difficult questions let's pray difficult prayers let's let our emotions be out there but let's move To where God wants us to be. Truth number five. Worship is always an option. I mean, it is always an option. Blessed be the name of the Lord is always an option. No matter what happens to you, worship is an option for you. Nothing can strip that response away from you. Nothing can take it away from you. No amount of suffering that anyone... Uh, endures. There's nothing that anybody can do to you that can take away your opportunity to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Nothing can do it. The bishop of Carthage in the third century wrote these words. He said, it's an incredibly bad world, but I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and good people who have learned the great secret of life they have found a joy and wisdom which is a thousand times better than any of the pleasures of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people are Christians, and I am one of them, he says. Matt Brock, my friend from Good News Productions International, says You have to determine before the crisis hits how you will react. So determine this day that you will worship. I think that we've all said at some point when somebody had something bad happen to them, we've all said this phrase, man, I don't know what I'd do if I was in their shoes. Anybody ever said that? I've said that. And there's truth to that statement that we don't know exactly how we would react. With that said, if you go back to the Old Testament, the book of Joshua right at the end of his life giving his, this charge this speech to the people he says this great line that some of you have turned into artwork and put it on your living room wall and it says regardless of what anybody else does as for me in my house we will serve the Lord and so think about what Joshua had done he had said Worship will always be the option I choose, regardless of the suffering, regardless of what happens. And I understand the thing of, yeah, I don't know what I would do, but how about as a church we say, I don't know everything that I'll feel, I don't know, um, you know, my emotions, I don't know what that would be like, but I'll tell you this, I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. I will worship no matter what comes. That's my commitment to Christ. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The truths that we're going to cover in the weeks to come, I listed on the sermon page. We're not going to spend any time on them today, but I just want you to hear them. Six is suffering and prosperity are often misunderstood. And in Tulsa, that is especially true. Seven is you need good friends when you suffer. Eight is God uses suffering to surprisingly bless us. And nine is God ultimately rewards the faithful. When the book of 1 Peter was written, the Christians were being slaughtered. They were being thrown into prison. They were being persecuted. The people reading this letter from 1 Peter, many of them would have seen daughters and sons and moms and dads and friends imprisoned or lit on fire like a torch or thrown to the lions, uh, thrown into prison. I mean, they had seen horrible horrible atrocities and so it blows our mind when Peter is writing to them and he says this in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6, in all of this you greatly rejoice though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Know my friends that your suffering even though it may be day after day. And year after year, compared to the surpassing greatness that will come, it's one day it 's just going to feel like a little while, like a little bit. So we have to hang on, and First Peter 11:3 says, "Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. So we hang on. For the time when Jesus comes, we set our hope on the grace of Christ, but it sure is hard to do that. How do we do that? How do, I, I mean, maybe we can understand some of these truths from Job and we can read the book, but practically speaking, how do we hang on? How do we survive when we're suffering? The greatest resource we have, the greatest hope, the greatest place to take our minds and hearts and hopes is this. Jesus Christ suffered for you. When you think about Job, you think about someone whose friends, uh, they didn't really comfort him for quite a while. They actually gave him some really bad advice. And Job suffered physically and emotionally, and he struggled spiritually in all of these things. But none of those compares to how Jesus suffered. Not only did his friends give him bad advice, they betrayed him. And Jesus, everything he had was taken from him. The physical suffering he endured can't be fathomed. And Job, he he felt like God had abandoned him. God never left him. But think about Jesus. Jesus felt like God abandoned him. And he had. And Jesus is the only one in history who the Father says, obey me. And you'll feel forsaken. For you and me, it's obey me and you'll always still know that I'm with you. But Jesus suffered more greatly than Job did. And Jesus reacted more honorably than anybody has in all of the world. He was the perfect example. He fulfilled what Job could not to suffer perfectly out of love for you, out of love for me all the way back to the garden of eden satan whispers to adam and eve god doesn't really love you you can't really trust him you should give up on him listen to me and they did and here we come to job chapter 1 and satan says to god job doesn't really love you he he doesn't really care for you and god Way better than Adam and Eve says. Try me. Because Satan doesn't understand love. When God says, Job will still love me just because he loves me. Satan, we can almost hear him singing, what's love got to do with it, got to do with it? Satan doesn't understand love. And Satan doesn't understand the love that God has for you and the love that you can have for God. Remember that lady I was talking to Halloween night? Right out here saying, it feels like every corner I turn, there's storm clouds waiting. In that moment, I felt prompted just to kind of be serious and speak with her some words for a moment. And I said, you know, I, I can't understand the storm clouds you're in. I can't understand your suffering. I said, but can I just tell you a few things I do know? I said, what I do know is that God still loves you. And that God has not given up on you. And that God has plans for you. And she said, well, I want to get my daughter back in church. And I said, "And, and I want you to do that too. But I want you to know that God's love is not just even about your daughter. It's about you too. And maybe you feel like you've blown it sometimes. And God still looks at you and says, I love you. And maybe you're suffering. And I want you to know that God looks at you and he says, I love you. I care for you. And Church, my friends, trust me, is what God says to you. Trust me when you don't understand. Trust me. If any of you have not placed your trust in Christ, then you've never placed your trust in the one who can actually deliver on his promises. That one day he will make all things right. It may not be in this life that all of everything works out for you, but one day he will make everything right and he will give you enough to sustain you through this life too. And if you want to place your trust in Jesus, we would love for you to come down even during this next song. We'd love to visit with you. We'll have some folks on the front rows who would love to pray with you and talk with you. If you would, would you stand and pray with me? God, we want to come together And say that as a church family, as people here in Tulsa, today we trust you, thank you, that you can be trusted. In Jesus' name, amen.